I think it's also where there are uses to organizing under terminologies and understandings of blackness I think it's also useful to contextualize them properly and that's what we're also trying to do within the German academic context because no one's experience is ever going to be exactly the same and there has to be space and understanding for that sort of plurality. Welcome to the Decolonization Action Podcast, a podcast that considers how knowledge, science, medicine, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonom, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. Today, I'm joined by Alina Bayamula and Benha Hummel. The Black Student Union at Humboldt University in Berlin is an independent body created to serve the interests of Black students. And the union is for Black people, people of African descent, and people who identify themselves as part of the Black and African diaspora. It's important to have this conversation mostly because the history of youth movements has always been against some issues related to the university, and it's been crucial for us to understand and identify how disparities are reproduced within university structures and even outside of them. So again, I'm very honored to have the two of you sitting with me today, virtually, of course. And I'm also especially happy that Alina is a former student of mine at the Humboldt. So it's quite refreshing to see the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So one of the first things I want to ask is, I want you all to tell me a little bit about yourself and what is the significance of emphasizing Black as an identity as opposed to simply defining oneself within the context of one's national or ethnic heritage, especially here in Europe? I think Blackness is, for one, very useful as an organizing tool and a principle. There are so many different iterations and articulations of blackness within the Black Student Union. There are people who are from the African continent, there are people from Germany, from London, from North America, um, and all of our experiences of blackness differ, but they also coalesce in a number of different ways within the university space. And there are commonalities and there are understandings and ways in which we can sort of form connections across our sort of diasporic identities that aren't exclusively particular to one national identity or ethnicity or shade. There are a number of people who, you know, are of mixed heritage or so I think it's also useful to understand that there are a number of different experiences of blackness within that space, but also understand that fundamentally within the university space, it's important for us to use and utilize and understand blackness as something that we can sort of gather around and work around as well. Yeah, similar to what Fenya just said, I think we all have very different experiences. I mean, I grew up here in Berlin, Fenya's from the UK. We have people from the continent, people from North America, and being Black is what unites us in a way. That doesn't mean that we don't are aware of differences and privileges within this being Black, but it's still something that is a term that makes it clear what are the uniting factors in our identities and something we can organize around. I think as well, there's a usefulness to, in many ways, the kind of specificity of blackness within sort of anti-racist work in Germany as well, where people sort of use terminology of POC without understanding actually what that can precisely mean. And also to pinpoint some of the explicit experiences of anti-blackness 
that black people experience in Germany within the university space. So that is also very essential for us to understand and to work around as well. Yeah, and I think that some of the points that you all bring up with respect to the uniqueness of a political organizing way to describe Blackness is so key and pivotal. And in a way, it differs from political Blackness in the UK, which might, in some cases, for some people, be considered to be inclusive of people outside the African diaspora. And, you know, obviously that comes from a different heritage, specifically leftovers of Stuart Hall and the ways in which people of Asian descent and people of African descent and beyond were coming together in Britain to, to really unify their struggle, not under the rubric of people of color, but political blackness, which has a very different legacy than the U.S., of course. And in here in Germany, as you know, even the term rasa and race as a concept is being debated across political spectrums from the left to the right. And part of asking the question of why Blackness and why is this significant now is because it can mean so many different things depending on who you are and where you're you're based. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also important to understand that in different contexts, Blackness differs. Like, it's not an entirely static thing as much as the systems that try to (laughs) or continue to oppress us would have us believe. One understanding of blackness in Nigeria, for example, where I'm from, is different from an understanding of blackness or my understanding of blackness when I'm in the UK, which is, again, different from the treatments and understandings of blackness in Germany as well, and then also the US. So I think think it's also where there are uses to organising under terminologies and understandings of blackness, I think is also useful to contextualize them properly and that's what we're also trying to do within the German academic context because no one's experience is ever going to be exactly the same and there has to be space and understanding for that sort of plurality so yeah I mean in the UK it's it's, it's completely different this kind of language of political blackness which you know at the time of its sort of most heavy use was extremely useful especially in sort of the work of unions etc but increasingly it's becoming more and more debated because some of that usefulness is no longer as relevant. But yeah, I think I think in this context we're we're definitely talking about people who are identifying with or are part of the African diaspora. Yeah, and you know, this pivots to a bit of history and thinking about what social movements people of the African diaspora have specifically done that has been tied to questions around social justice and turning to the history and legacy of Black student unions as a whole. There was a period in the 60s and 70s within the U.S. during the Freedom Summer campaigns where students were registering people in the American U.S. South to vote or, um, in some cases, student activists forming things such as the Mississippi Student Union and Black students being at the crux and the center and the pulse of activism and, you know, one of the more popular groups that took on national and international attention was the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee. And it goes without saying that Black student unions emerged during the civil rights movement and helped to shape and sharpen Black freedom struggles. So given that history from the mid 20th century, and now we're in the early 21st century, what is your understanding of the historical roots of BSUs and how do you see it 
or why do you see it as important in the context of Germany, where it has a different history, a different legacy, a different diasporic composition that has found itself here for various reasons? I think because blackness in Germany is still not really seen as something that actually exists in a way. We are kind of borrowing from the U.S., a lot of what we're doing is borrowed from the U.S. The circumstances are very different, but at the same time, this need for a community is still there. And that is something that is so important to us and is one of the very important parts of the BSU to build this community, to come together. One of the things that was very clear when we had our first few Safer Space meetings is this thing of people being overwhelmed with seeing all these Black faces because when you're at university, you don't see them. There might be, if you're lucky, there's one or two other people who are Black in your classes. And a lot of times you're the only one. And I think in German society, it can be similar because different to the US, there are less Black people in Germany, but also because the history is so different, we don't have these communities. We don't have these areas that are mostly populated by Black people which, yes, segregation, it's a whole other thing and a whole other thing that can be debated, but it's there, It's also a way in which communities formed and are still uphold today and we don't have that. So I think with forming the BSU, the history of the US became kind of important and also some things that have been going on in the UK have become important because it wasn't really, we didn't really have anything in Germany to look to because for some reasons, it's not to say that there haven't been student unions before, but the information just isn't readily available. Yeah, just to add to that, I think the more I sort of think about the question that you just asked, the more complicated and huge it becomes. I think, of course, necessarily, there's a reason that in, in so much of German activism around anti-racism, there is a lot of looking to the US, which I think can be problematic but at times it's the most readily and available tool and the most useful tool at the time. But I think it's also sad to think about the way in which student unions were forming in the 60s and the fact that this is a process that is only beginning now in Germany. And I think it also speaks to the nature of the discourse in Germany. It speaks to the nature of uh, or the state of organising in Germany, which isn't to say, of course, it isn't there and it isn't making progress. But it just shows that there's really a lot to be done, that these spaces don't exist or aren't established or as established as they are in the US. And so I think it's a very important history. But I think when we sort of look around us in Germany and we're trying to reach for that sort of ancestry when it comes to student organising, it's just hard to find. And so I think there's a sort of necessity to broaden our search for references, for information, for that kind of a specific history. Absolutely. And there have been Black people in Germany or German-speaking lands for ages, since at least a medieval period, if not before. And part of asking a question about what is the Black student union or Black student movement look like in Germany is asking the question of to what extent were Black people even allowed to study to begin with? And what, what did their role look like and what did their presence look like, especially in the early 20th century, where there were Black people in Berlin, in Hamburg, and in some cases they were colonial subjects, but they weren't German citizens. In some cases, the only kinds of positions they could get was to be entertainers 
and not seen as intellectuals. And so that speaks to the anti-Blackness that you brought up earlier, where in a way, if anti-Blackness and that specific experience of being of African descent relegated to people to positions that wouldn't even fully give them access to a university, unless they're coming from the outside, like W.E.B. Du Bois or Angela Davis. Um, and, you know, obviously there were people who studied here, but it was more likely, especially in East Germany after 45, 1945, that people of African descent would be guest workers, but not necessarily university students. So it's, it's important to unpack that history as well. So I want to talk about the BSU at Humboldt since and the exciting work that you're doing. And your aim is to improve the experience of Black students at the university at Humboldt. And you strive for both intellectual and personal growth and try to acknowledge the system of oppression that affects people, especially at times when you feel isolated and such. And I wanted to know what have been the recent campaigns that BSU has taken on why have you taken them on and what do you hope to accomplish? So within the BSU, we really have two main strains in a way. We have the community aspect and then we have the organizational aspect. And then the organizational aspect, something we have done in our earlier days. I mean, we're still really young. We started meeting last December, so we are less than a year old. But one of the first things we have done is having a meeting with the Mittelbau at the African Institute, talking to them about racism within the Institute, which also fed into the letter of complaint, the nine-page letter of complaint that we sent out a few weeks ago about the African Institute. The African Institute, especially because of its heavily colonial history, has a very important part to play in this colonial structure of the university. And they are doing abysmally so far, to be honest. So... Yeah, we are we are focused on that. And then something we're also doing, we're starting to do is a mentoring scheme with the coming winter semester for new students, which will automatically also feed into the community aspect. But it's also just a way for new students to not feel so lost and alone at university and also to give them a safe pathway on the way to let them know, hey, this could be a good class, this professor is really good, or be careful with these people, which is something I wish I had had when I started studying at HU. And something else we've also been doing is just publishing our experiences and what it means to be part of the BSU at, um, on our Instagram in the beginning. And we are currently also working on a, well, best practice or kind of guidelines with the American studies institute when it comes to racialized language because i'm for example i'm an american studies student and we are reading a lot of authors of color discussing a lot of texts from people of color from black people especially but the way language is dealt with in the classroom and the way racist incidents are dealt with in the classroom is very lacking so that is also something we are invested in bettering yeah and then as a community it's really about making space for up uplifting each other having um meetings in person also and just being around each other share our experiences and making sure that nobody feels alone yeah i think sort of on the other side of things a lot of the work that we do is kind of this care work this sort of work to sort of 
be able to sustain each other and just try at least to ensure that we can complete our degrees or if we can't that we have the support to be able to make that decision and so one thing that I didn't actually realize would be so essential to me what after I joined the BSU was like the safer space meetings that we had I really thought I was just there for the organizing and to like you know cause trouble a little bit but I realized that being in a space with other black people where I could understand and share experiences and sometimes you just need a reassurance of like I I think that was I think that was race, racist I think that was there was some race racialized motivation have you had a similar experience of that or you know just just being able to sort of share in that way within this sort of specific university space was actually so crucial to me and developing those networks of care that were different and grounded in something that was communal became increasingly essential to me. And there is a lot of sort of informal care work that goes on within the BSU because, of course, there's a sort of much more active organising work, but there's a lot of phone calls, texts, checking in. I haven't heard from you. What's going on? Are you taking care of yourself? And that's, I think, as essential as the other stuff. And so knowing that there's that network, knowing that there's that support system is really crucial, I think, for Black students in academic spaces because they can really gaslight you. You can really start to question everything. And so it's important to have that reinforcement and to know that there are people that have your back. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way, coming together as a community allows a space to dream together, to see what joy might look like, to have laughter and just be able to be relaxed. One might call it care work, but it's also just a communion of similar free spirits that can suddenly and fully be themselves at times, especially when it is truly inclusive of Black people who are transgender, disabled, that positive, etc. That also allows more space. And I think the younger generation has a lot to offer <laughs> compared to older generations of Black student movements that may not have been as aware and as grounded on a broad spectrum of Blackness, if that makes, if makes any sense. One thing that I kind of wanted to get a little bit from you as well is uh, this question around the African Studies Department and specifically faculty. Are there any Black faculty members or tenured Black faculty members, to your knowledge, at the Humboldt University today? And what does it look like to exercise solidarity with them if they do exist as fully tenured Black professors? Yeah, (laughs) there are Black professors. There are not enough. And the majority of those within the faculty that have tenure are not black and we see that as a problem and alongside that the people who are in precarious positions there is a higher concentration let's say of black people there and then also there's the sort of language side of things in Africa and Sheffield and African studies and some of those teachers are black as well not all of them But I think there also emerges a hierarchy. Those who have established positions within the faculty are predominantly white. And those that deal with knowledge production and producing ideology on the African continent are predominantly white. And as you kind of move further down this absurd (laughs) academic hierarchy, 
you'll see that those in sort of more precarious positions are black within this particular department. And I'm sure you see that across a number of universities. That doesn't come as a surprise to me. So I think it's quite difficult to engage with faculty in that way because across many universities people are so scared for their jobs it's such a precarious career path to enter into academia and so as a black academic being able especially you know for example some might have children or other care responsibilities or needs and as a student who's also interested in supporting black people within the university structure that might also mean like not messing up the bag for them. And also it means that they might not be able to or not feel capable of speaking up in a way that they might like to. So it's a really, really tricky situation. And so from our position, all we can do is challenge that, challenge the structure and the formation of the department itself, critique its colonial practices, critique the image that it's projecting, critique the knowledge that it's producing on the African continent. And in that way, also try and be a sort of support to to faculty because we see what they're doing. We see how these structures are emerging and perpetuating themselves and reinforcing themselves. And we know what happens when contracts aren't renewed and we know why. And so it's frustrating and it's painful to watch. But it's also, yeah, it's also, I guess, a kind of a roundabout solidarity because a lot of people are, are scared and that's understandable. I think Kenya said it very well, and maybe just to add that in general at the university, or at least the faculties I've been at, there are very, very few black professors and even fewer, if any, in tenured positions. And that's also something as a black student, it's something special when you have a black teacher. I had two classes in all of my studies I'm in my fourth MA semester now and I had two classes with black teachers and I was one of them and you were one of them yeah (laughs) I was one of those black teachers who is not tenured as you might know (laughs) exactly and the other one was a PhD student Mm. so it's just yeah it's a problem all over university and I'm sure it's not just Humboldt it's just the problem in Germany and probably the West in general. I think it also speaks to not just in the African studies department, but the way in which like colonialism, colonial structures really embed themselves within the very foundations of university institutions. And we see that in the way in which that hierarchies exist and the way in which they're perpetuated and where students are positioned also like within that hierarchy, within different sort of university structures, also globally, I would say in the UK, there's also you know, it's a different structure, it's a different sort of way in which students enter into university, the way they pay for university, the access that they have to it. And yet we see that a lot of these sort of dynamics and hierarchies are also reproduced. So fundamentally, I think there is an issue with the way in which we think about the university space. And that is really distilled within Afrika Wissenschaften at HAU, where, you know, the Institute is theorising around a continent, a space, which is the home of Black people, of Black bodies, fundamentally. And it's not demonstrating a respect or understanding of humanity of those particular subjects rather is treating them as subjects and without sort of acknowledging the complexity and the humanity and how that translates into teaching black students as well, who are experiencing racism, who are asking teachers to behave more sensitively and that's simply being refused. So 
I mean, it's just one institute in a larger structure, but yeah. Absolutely. And perhaps that's the heart of anti-Blackness and describing and being able to pinpoint the ways by which Black people can be just perceived as objects by Western Europeans and specifically as commodities and things to culturally appropriate from, as opposed to a genius, a philosopher, a scientist. And I I could go on and on. Rather, there's an expectation of like performance and or a visually aesthetically thing to grab from. And in a way, it relates to Frank Wilderson III's Afro-pessimism and the necessity to really unpack how pervasive anti-Blackness is, not just in Western Europe and the United States, but globally. But it also speaks to some of the things that both of you mentioned in terms of like, what is the site of the university and what is it based off and how did it form and how did it become a place to reproduce very colonial ideas and to continue to demarcate you know, an entire continent without the consultation of a single African person. And in a way, universities have also become the site to challenge that colonial history and to engage in decolonial practices, some of which have been explicitly tied to the reckoning with racist history. So at Princeton University, where I got my PhD, the call for or demand that the university get rid of the names of races from buildings, the formation of a slavery project, as well as an indigenous project to ensure that that history is taught and that we acknowledge what kind of land that was stolen, that the university rests on, and so forth and so forth, and the returning of objects that were stolen from Black and Indigenous people. So given Humboldt University's history, how is BSU or how are other student groups engaging in decolonial practices? And what is a decolonial anti-racist education look like at a place like Humboldt University or even outside the university? I think within that, it's always so essential for us to continue to question our position. We are students within a university, which is highly colonial, I think. To its very bones, the idea of knowledge production and gatekeeping and which knowledge is allowed to sort of bleed out of these institutions and how it's shared and what's privileged and forming these hierarchies of knowledge, I think we have to be very aware that we are existing within that structure as students. And how we relate to that structure is also really important. I think increasingly it's becoming apparent that universities, in order to or to do the work of decolonization, there has to be like, they can't exist as they are. I think fundamentally, and this is my position, I think they're broken and they're rotting from the inside. I think they need to be sort of fundamentally deconstructed and rebuilt as something different for them to exist in a way that's also sustainable. And so when I think about that, I sort of think about Stuart Hall's Centre for Cultural Studies or something at Birmingham University, where there was it was a, a much more sort of levelled system whereby students and teachers were sort of exchanging information and there wasn't so much of a sort of strong hierarchy. And I think that's something that I really perhaps fixate upon when it comes to thinking about colonialism is the structures and the bureaucracy that's in place and like the maintenance of that kind of a system and I think that's something that we also seek to challenge everyone in a university has something to learn that's why people are engaging in research but I think there has to be a sort of broader understanding of what knowledge is how we share that knowledge what why are we privileging particular knowledges 
why aren't we approaching education in a more holistic way? Why are we shutting out these voices? Why is something considered not to be relevant? What is relevance? And so I think with some of the work that we do, we're trying to offer other ways of reading, other ways of discussing, other ways of talking about things. It's also offering encouragement to to pursue particular interests within this space. It's also challenging the way in which we're taught. And yeah, some of some of those kinds of structures and in terms of a different education or an anti-racist education in Germany. Yeah, I just think like a fundamental overhaul and a real sort of interrogation of what that actually means is essential, I think decolonization can often be sort of conflated with adding some black writers to a reading list that's absolutely not what it is the work of decolonization runs so much deeper than that and it frustrates me when that's what it's kind of limited to if we think about museums if we think about libraries at my last university like all of the African literature was literally underground thinking structurally and architecturally about these things thinking about the way in which things are lit in museums you see often like African art is sort of lit from underneath and it's kind of in a dark room and it's it's treated as some sort of mystical object and not necessarily art in the sense of the way in which sort of Western European art is treated. So there are so many subtleties and nuances to, to colonialism and the process of decolonizing that there's just a lot to deal with. <laughs> there's a lot to do. Yeah, I mean, you've said most of it, I think, or all of it, maybe even. I fully agree with and like she said I don't think it's in I mean yes I totally believe the work we are doing is extremely important but I also recognize that just having a BSU is not going to decolonize the university I mean the Humboldt Forum just opened right opposite the main building it shares the same name it's German you would say a Schandfleck for me (laughs) of the and it's such a colonial thing to even rebuild it and now what they have in it and Humboldt University doesn't only share the name but they are actively involved with the Humboldt Forum so yeah it's it's just it runs so much deeper and there needs to be a structural change that has to come because it's such a hierarchical system it has to come from higher up to actually deconstruct the way universities work now and to have something, or to hopefully build something that comes closer to decolonial studies and decolonial, yeah, something decolonial. <laughs> but I don't think it's, it's, it's possible for any student group to, to completely de- decolonize the space, which doesn't make these groups like the BSU less important. It's still very important, or maybe even more important to have these small havens within such a colonial system. But it's such a, it's a very big, institutionalized problem yeah and in a way what you're describing is the ongoing debates about reform versus revolution in a way reform or having these intermediary steps dress rehearsals where you can form autonomous groups that are actively thinking and practicing exercising liberation and one example of this that i looked at before was the Freedom University, where it was a free university for undocumented students in the U.S. that was kind of founded by university professors who acknowledge, obviously, the barriers that undocumented people have to be able to access the university and decided to give that 
service for free or teach-ins and the legacies of that where communities can come together, radicals can come together to really focus on leftist, Marxist, anarchist readings and use that as a pamphlet to envision new formations of being. So, and obviously with something like revolution, this is where the discourse of abolition <laughs> would come into play, the discourse of just burning it all down or starting afresh. The world as we know it isn't serving so many of its people, and that might mean just completely abolishing or getting rid of systems and institutions that don't quite honor the various humans that exist on this planet. So I wanted to end with a brighter note, which is, you know, given all of the work that you are doing and the, you know, you won't be students forever, but you will continue being Black <laughs> in Germany or wherever you go. I just wanted to ask, what does Black joy look like to you? What does the Black freedom struggle look like to you when it is kind of encapsulated with, with joy? That's a good question. And I feel like one that we're never really prepared to ask when we sort of get into the stone <laughs> revolution. But I think it is essential to sort of focus on black joy. And I think for me, that can be transmitted through flavor. That can be transmitted through sort of sharing these sort of, yeah, these delicious moments. I, I know that so much of my understanding of my identity and blackness comes from, you know, talking when my grandma was alive, talking to my grandma on the phone and saying like, hold on, my rice wasn't quite perfect. Can we go back to the drawing board on this? Can we sort of, can we, can we edit this process a little bit to make it better and, and sharing in that with others? I think for me, so much of that joy comes through different ways of, or as I said before, different forms of care, different forms of nourishment, different ways in which we can sort of share space and kind of wordless understandings that we can share with one another. Also like, one thing I have to say about the safer spaces, they're funny. We laugh a lot. And I think for me, so much of the joy I experience as a Black woman is like the sense of humour that I share with my family, with my friends. And so for a brief moment, when you're sort of caught in laughter, you can almost like transport yourself into that laughter. And that's, that's all that's happening. And so, yeah, I think it's like those kind of almost intense physical sensations that are part and parcel. So sharing in blackness with others of, of flavor, of laughter, of care, of kindness. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's that for me. Yeah, I agree. I think it's this finding a community in a way. I mean, I'm somebody who grew up with only a white family, so I didn't have this thing of like calling my black grandmother to <laughs> ask about the rice or something. But finding this community and having this silent understandings, and I think it can be like this joy. It's, it can be like loud joy when we laugh out loud or when we have barbecues or whatever, but it can be also a more silent kind of joy when it's just two people, for example, spending time together and you're you're either working on something or just talking or just being kind of and having this feeling this connection that you have within this world and within your standing of society and I think it's really yeah it's something really special and something we should all strive to uphold. Can I ask you the same question? <laughs> oh wow okay the <laughs> interviewer gets interviewed um that is a totally fair question i think that 
it is a work in progress for me to think about Black joy, because in a way, I don't want to be formulaic in how I articulate it. And I want to also acknowledge that there are times where it may not be so easy to embody that Black joy, especially in the context of massive suffering or in the cases of dealing with actual death from kin with whom I love and care for and witnessing how structural racism is not just embodied in the people that I know, but also even in myself. And so in trying to have this uh, process of seeing what it looks like and how I can do it, it is a laborious act. Nevertheless, for me, there are similar themes of what that might look like. And it involves being able to laugh, being able to be lighthearted, being able to feel safer, comfortable, and and being in the sun, to be honest, because <laughs> I'm from Miami, born and raised, and I appreciate the beauty of the ocean or a sea and being in nature and really taking the time to hear the sounds of the waves, see the sunshine kind of reflecting and bouncing off of a body of water, seeing you know, birds of prey flying into the sky, like all of those things are the seeds and the kernel for how my joy gets manifested when I'm able to be fully in nature. So that is, you know, not a very <laughs> eloquent answer per se, but it is tied to immersing myself in the world without worry. Sorry to, I don't want to like... <laughs> But I think I think it's also really important what you articulated because I think sometimes how we access joy feels like it's a process of accessing joy in spite of, despite, in response to. And that laughter has the residues or can have the residues of some kind of pain. But like it's the fact of the laughter, the fact of its existence, the fact that we have the capacity to achieve these moments of joy, of lightness, that I think is also like inherent to those experiences of joy. Like we can still do this. We can still look at the sea and the water, which is a site of so much pain that carries so much trauma and, and see the light reflecting off it and appreciate that beauty. Or, you know, we can exist within sort of nature, within those spaces and understand like how, you know, we were also, I mean, we are a part of nature, but we were undifferentiated from, you know, animals and plants in, in a way that was truly violent. But being able to also access that and find joy and pleasure in that is essential. So I'm also grateful that you pointed that out as well, because it's not, it is hard to sort of embody joy and, and it is essential as well. And it's, I think, actually a very central part for organising and I think it's what motivates and, and maintains so much of what we're doing as well. Thank you for that positive note and for you, Alina and Fenya, for joining me today on the podcast. Thank, Thank you, you for having, having us. us. My name is Edna Bonome, and you have been listening to the Decolonization in Action podcast. And we were digitally based voices here in Berlin, Germany. As always, there's a list of references and bibliography in the show notes to learn more about the podcast or to find more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I hope you have a great day.